Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening, everybody. Tim, alcoholic. I, you know, to, to Dave and his other brother, Dave, for putting this thing together. You guys, in three years, this is pretty damn good. So, thank God this thing's over. I mean, it's, it's just so good to be with you guys and see our people and our tribe and all that. But anyway, so here I am, Tim Walsh, alcoholic. My home group is the Canby Saturday Breakfast Meeting, and right now I'm going to invite you. That's in Canby, Oregon, on Saturday morning from 9 to 10.30. If you were to show up, my friend Aaron Zyback will buy you breakfast. If Aaron's not there at the meeting that day, then my friend Ron Hanson will buy you breakfast. Now, if neither of those two are there, then it falls to me. I have a condition. I will buy you breakfast, anything you want on the menu, excluding tip, up to $6. Okay? That's how I roll. <laughs> I haven't found it necessary to take a drink and drag a weed, nothing chemical from the neck up since the third, uh, the 22nd of July, 1990. And for that, I'm grateful. <clears throat> I got up this morning. I had a dry bed. I got relatively clean underwear on right side out, which I can prove. <laughs> I got a matching pair of socks. Got a car in the parking lot. This is for the new guys. How about four fenders, all the same color? <laughs> Haven't found it necessary to get married this week, nor have had found it necessary to file for divorce. <laughs> Nobody's looking for me. I outlived them all. And, uh, oh, it's rather handy this day. Nowadays, i got a sponsor who's an attorney. That's rather, a, that ain't a bad idea. If you're new, think about that. <laughs> so... I'm obviously in Portland, you guys can tell by my accent. <laughs> my dad is Irish Catholic. My mom is Norwegian Lutheran. I was born a month late. I weighed over 11 pounds. According to family legend, they said, put the cigarette out. I asked for another beer. I don't believe the cigarette. Too young to be smoking. <clears throat> my, uh, I grew up in Portland. My dad worked out in the docks the shipyards in Portland, and uh, we grew up above that in the neighborhoods. The neighborhood I grew up in was the greatest generation. It was full of Navy and Marine, and uh, primarily of those forces from World War II. And my dad was one of the Navy guys, and he worked in the shipyards down below us. And so all of us kids, that's who our fathers and our mothers were. My dad, like I said, he's working from the, at the end of the war. All, he was always involved in the maritime industry. Mom was working in this uh, Alpine engine machine. She was a telephone operator back in the day when they plugged it in the walls. And they, they hooked up. Her brother was working on the tugboats. And uh, that's where the, actually my dad and Johnny were working together. And then uh, he met his Johnny's sister, and here I am. Johnny would die at age 54 from acute alcoholism. But, moving on. So here I am, I've been born now. And, uh, yeah, you can tell, it happened. So I, uh, what time I start this thing? We'll be out of here at 10 even. So... So, the area I grew up in was just a few, a couple blocks off the bluffs that, uh, over the, the Willamette River. And I had this kind of really cool life in the 60s, right? We were down there along the river. We built rafts. Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn were our templates, man. We read those books. We studied them. We emulated them. And we had the environment to do that. I'm like nine years old stealing, I remember it was Newport cigarettes this one particular time. And we're swimming out to the, there's a, there's a small Navy base at that time in Swan Island. And there was the destroyer escort McGinty and the, tor- the uh, submarine loggerhead. Nine years old, swimming out in one of the most polluted rivers in the United States, keeping the cigarettes and matches dry. <laughs> we crawl out into the torpedo tubes to smoke a cigarette. You gotta admit, who else has done that in this room? <laughs> Somebody raise their hand back there. 
got to be an Al-Anon. <laughs> and uh, Ellen, that was a hell of a talk. <laughs> Seriously. That was, that was just rocking. For that matter, what I've heard here this weekend has just been uh, just fantastic. And you with five years to get up here? That's nuts. I mean, you know, I say that, you stand up here and see how many eyeballs are looking back at you, you know. So, parochial school, I was an altar boy, you could probably sense that. <laughs> and uh, there's the sacramental wine. You know, my, my, for, back to childhood. My neighbor, the, the, the way we grew up in the environment we were in, we were all nurtured. There was no weird stuff. Nobody put me in the toilet backwards and caused all the kind of dysfunction. The house, we were a little nuts. I mean, between the Norwegians and the Irish and all the rest of that nonsense, but oh well. And uh, everybody drank. It was the old home movies when we got them. Everybody smoking camels or palm malls with a highball, which is whiskey water, you know, and uh, a lot of Heidelberg beer. That was us. Oh, then there was a little cut into my uncle Donnie, my dad's side, at the Oregon State Mental Hospital, waving through the gate. <laughs> right where he needed to be. <laughs> so, parochial school, doing all this stuff. Here I am, and get old enough now to be an altar boy, right? I'm the second of uh, four kids, so I have my older brother. We're altar boys, I don't know what day, Saturday or Sunday. It wasn't Sunday Mass, it was one of the, maybe a Saturday. We're in the sacristy. If you're not a Catholic, the sacristy is back there where you get all geared up or what you can do out front. And my brother, he pops this with a bottle of sacramental wine, takes a big pull off, and I'm going, whoa, that is the blood of Christ. <laughs> I don't think it's that funny. <laughs> He's drinking the blood of Christ. He says, he gestures to me, I'm thinking, oh my, I'm just what the hell is he doing? And he just, take a drink, take a drink. No! He hands me the bottle, I pull it back, and the door opens. <laughs> Bless me, Father, for I am sinning, you know. <laughs> and there you go. That's it. Have a good night. So, um, yeah, that from the gate, right? And anyway, there, there's the problems in the 60s and whatnot. For that matter, real quickly, there's a lot of you guys from the 60s. I would like to acknowledge some of you maniacs. There's one of them, the old gray beard back there. Thank you for setting a template that we would advance in the 70s. Sharon. Oh, yeah. She's one of them right there. She's going, yeah. So uh, that's what we did, man. And... Uh, you know, from the late 60s, there was all this racial tension going on, and I was pretty close to that in the neighborhoods we were living in. So what mom and dad did, I've been raised in this one house, and they packed up, and we moved out to the Burbs. And so here I am from this really secular environment where I know everybody, we're really tight. I was all my life, I've known that neighborhood. Now I'm in the suburbs in a public school. To give you an idea how foreign this was to me, first, so if we get out there, the new school is going to be day one of junior high. Seventh grade. I'm in this big public school, recently built. My old one was built in 1920-something, an old brick Catholic school. So now I'm in this public facility. I'm in the boys' bathroom, and they got this, what's this big semicircular trough. You step on this little thing, and you make water. <laughs> I'm using it. These guys walk in. What the hell's a Catholic kid doing? Bless me, Father, for my sinning, you know. <laughs> I, it was a sink. Hey, who knew? <laughs> so I'm just not fitting in here. I run into that. Very quickly, I ran into those guys because I'm attracted to them. I'm attracted to you people, so that settles that one. I, 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 I see these guys who are kind of on the margins. They got that little gleam in their left eye. And uh, so I kind of hook up with my homeboys to be. And at some point here, somebody introduced me to this little, did you ever smoke one of this little outside issue? I said, no, but maybe we should. So I hit that little outside issue with these guys, and at that time, there was a Lutheran church. Now, I'm a Catholic kid, and the Lutherans, they don't really count. The Lutherans were doing this. You know it, and I know it. So they, there were, there was, the, there was this church up the street, and what they were doing, they were holding these, uh, they were well-intentioned for distressed youth. 
or at risk or whatever you want to call it. We weren't really at risk yet. We would be in the years to come. But they were inviting us into the facility for different activities, going bounce, bounce the ball around the gym or whatever. And what we were doing, when nobody was looking, we were kind of shaking down the church. We're looking to see where the, what something we can maybe borrow. Right, Larry? And, uh, and we found it. Uh, the Lutherans have the sacramental wine that it comes with. These guys, these guys did. In gallon jugs. You take the cap off this stuff, you knock it over, it will not spill. Now, you gotta warm it up to get it even doing. It's just, it's just like tar. You could take a blob of it, put on this podium and light it, it would burn for 20 minutes. <laughs> We're out behind that church just scooping out going. This is good. Let's get three more gallons and we'll kind of disperse it through the neighborhood for a little exchange program going on. Off to the races, right? And uh, so, you know, I started early. I went to the party at 14. I didn't get home until I was 34. <laughs> and here we go, man. It just ramming and jamming. And so I, this is junior high, and obviously I'm on track now. It just we're, we're like a ping pong ball going through a, a maze. And uh, didn't do too well in junior high. Advanced now up to what will be high school. In my inventories, years later, I look back on this and think, okay, this is one of those junctures in life where I'm going to change. I got to quit hanging out with those guys. I got to straighten up and fly right. Get serious with the school. Let's get. Let's. It's a new man. Um, new building, new people. I've made a conscious decision. You guys are proud of me. I get off the bus, and I mean, right in front of the school. I went to Park Rose in Portland. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you guys up here, but if you're in the Portland metro area back in the 70s, according to the Oregon, the state of Oregon and all the, whoever keeps track of all this data, at that time, in 1971, we had the largest incident of drug use and everything. We were just totally sideways more than any other high school in the entire state. And I just stepped off the bus. So somebody there at the front door, you know, they're, they're just, you know, day one, they got these little, little tiny pill, orange colored, really tiny. You cut it in four pieces, you can share it with your friends. They said, you should take one of these. And I thought, well, it is the first day of high school. Day one, we'll see. Pop that sucker. First period, I go to school because I'm changing into what I'm doing. <laughs> An hour later, I thought, bad day to choose that uh, path. <laughs> Somebody says there's a party down the street. Where? <laughs> Literally, across the street, I think it was eight houses up the one on the left. How many of you guys have been down to Seaside? You're familiar with Harlan? Yeah. It was his house. <laughs> Kegger was on. I tried. I really did. You know, and uh, it just didn't get any better. <laughs> it stayed like that a lot. And uh, so by the time I'm, in my, I'm a junior, you know, by the time I was 17, 17 for me was a busy year. Uh, let's see, I had a 57 Chevy Apache roll over me. Those are well-built trucks, and they're really heavy, and they hurt when they land on you. <laughs> Harlan was in that crash, and... Uh, Got an altercation with the guys at a kegger out in the Sandy River. At some point, weapons were pulled. He was trying to stab me in the chest. I blocked it. I took it in the left arm. Uh, that turned into some high drama. Obviously, a trip for Timmy to the hospital. Um, came to one morning at one of the kegger holes down on the Columbia. I come to. I'm laying in the mud. It's early dawn. It's kind of cold, but it's the middle of summer. I'm covered with mud. I'm just... Not even hung over, I'm still half drunk and just totally shot to pieces. At these keggers back in the day, we had Dairy Queen cups. You pay like two bucks and give you a Dairy Queen all you can drink. I'm a pig. My intention is to get up there and let's get this, let's get her done. So I'm coming to it. I'm, there's nobody. Everybody's completely gone. And where I am, I'm out where all the guys go to relieve themselves. <laughs> Hence the mud. It's hard to be cool, you know. Yeah, I'm thinking to myself, someday I'm going to go to AA. I need to take notes on all this stuff. And I don't remember how I got home or what I did. It doesn't really matter. But these are just patterns, man, that are starting to show up in my life with pretty alarming frequency. You know, the, the cops are showing up. I'm getting arrested for different things. Uh, there's a lot of fights, a lot of violence. And uh, I've always been kind of a predisposed towards that end of things. Back in the day, I was pretty happy, and I could, you know, could do it to it. And so could the guys I was dealing with. So it was just kind of a rough and tumble environment I'm running with. 
So at seven, by the end of my middle of my junior year, Park Rose High School and I have determined it's time for us to part company. I agreed. I need to set forth on a career doing, I have no idea what. And uh, back in these days, these days, they called them the Rainier Sunbus. There were free concerts, right? And I remember one day in particular, Bachman Turner Overdrive was playing. Yeah. And you know, you know what my memory of BTO is in that, that day? Is a, Sharon, here we go. Half, a half gallon of Spagnata wine with about this much left in it and a quarter ounce of mescaline. Shake hard, pass to friends. <laughs> it wasn't all bad, guys. <laughs> so, Vietnam was still cranking on. I remember thinking, I need to get into the, the great adventure. That's what I need, little adventure. I'm big, tough. I can handle this. I'll join the Marine Corps, go save the United States from communism. So I go downtown, I go to enlist in the Marine Corps before I get drafted because I'm well on the way to having that happen in the next few months, I thought. And I have a bum knee that's since been replaced, but it back then is even shot to pieces. So I go to the recruiter and I got the paperwork and I came home. And I made this big decision. You know, my, my, the old man, he's old school. He's just not, he's not happy with his second son. And uh, every family's got to have a second son or a daughter or maybe the third. Anyway, I come home and I said, well, Pa, put it down. Join the Marine Corps. He goes, what? There's a war going on. And I thought I knew my dad, right? When I put that down in front of him, he says, what the hell are you doing? So, well, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. No, I just whatever, trying to be a manual manny man-like kid and as you know one of the one of two times i saw my old man start to cry and i think what have i just done here what nerve is this you know in the years to come i'd realize that my old man when he was in the navy he was 18 years old on a place called omaha beach an hour and a half into the landings on an lci landing craft infantry it's a 204 foot vessel they put on the beach at omaha that's where he was and now his second kid is talking about doing something really silly Anyway, they wouldn't take me. And uh, so then from there, I tried the Coast Guard and other services, and that didn't pan out. By now, I'm uh, 18, 19, and I'm, I'm, I'm hitting different jobs. Of course, at 18, in our family, we went to work in the shipyards, tear ships apart, put them back together again. And uh, tell them I'm busy. <laughs> you know, a while back, I was doing this, and somebody left the phone on the podium. It rang. I went, wow. I answered it, and I, Hello? <laughs> That was actually Harlan's stepdaughter. <laughs> but um, that was funny. So here I am. I'm, now I'm bouncing around the streets. I'm, I've always worked. I've always been able to find jobs. Uh, some interesting ones. How many people in this room have ever killed chickens for a paycheck? <laughs> really, Skip? I know. There's something about you and I that just bond. Yeah. I did it for 30 days, and they said, you got to join the union? I said, I think not. <laughs> But uh, dug graves for a little while, learned something from that. When you dig a grave by hand and you put a guy in it, less dirt goes back in the hole. I learned something in school. It wasn't all a waste of time. <laughs> so there's always something to do, you know. And uh, so I'm just kicking around. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with my life. Then I, I remember sitting in the kitchen. I told my mom, I said, you know what? I'm going to Alaska. That's where we go, because Alaska is the great last hope, right? And uh, you can get away with anything in Alaska. And she goes, really? I said, I, I had this big plan. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to get on a fishing boat. That's it. I'm going to go fish and sail the salty seas and the Bering Sea. So what my mom did, because she loved me and she really wanted me out of her house, she gave me a ride from Portland to, this is true, from Portland to Seaside, gave me 20 bucks and said, right when you get work. <laughs> Love you, Ma. I made it to Iwako. That's right across the river. <laughs> hey, you know what? I scored it in Iwako. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hustler, man. The, 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 boat, the boat basin back in those days was packed. I mean, it was, it was rocking and rolling. The guys, there was a lot of money being made. And what I did, I had no experience. I walked up and down those docks. If I heard noises on the boat or saw guys on board, I banged in the hull and asked who wanted to buy some sweat. That was my mantra. And I did that for two or three days. I had all my camping gears, all camouflage, uh, military surplus stuff up in the city park, all kind of before it was popular. 
kind of <laughs> cam it into the, yeah. I'm from Portland for Christ's sake. Now, now it's blue tarp, so you can identify what party they're with. That was bad, forgive me. <laughs> Did I say that? I did, didn't I, Don? Uh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Little secret joke there. So, uh, I ended up getting on a, the first boat was a little charter boat, and this guy, he told me, Columbia Bar is rather violent. It's a little bouncy, right? And, uh, it's actually the most dangerous body of water in the northern, in the northern hemisphere. And uh, the skipper of this charter boat says, you need to quit throwing up, dude. <laughs> you really do. I'm trying. Oh, right now. It's supposed to stop. And finally, we got over that. And uh, I kept hustling. I mean, you're always after the commercial guys. And before it was a few months in, I'm on the, one of the top seven boats in the harbor. And back then, I ended up on a shrimp boat. In the late 70s, shrimp was number two right behind king crab. There was a lot of money in it. Now, here I am. I got nothing. I'm making $7,000 a month, and the party is on. I got nothing. I don't need nothing. I got money. A lot of it. And uh, so we're just, you know, I mean, we go burn the cash up as fast as humanly possible. When you run out, we simply fire the boat up, go out and get more. And uh, that was all going really well until one day there was an altercation with the bars down there. And it didn't end well. Um, guy about the size of Landis over here, pulls me off the bar stool and starts walking around giving me like a little Dutch rub with a pretty rowdy eye. And I figure I'll pop him one time before he beats me half to death and it turned out and went the other direction. But before we were done, guns are going off. Uh, they're looking for me really seriously. And to this day, most of them are dead. So I don't care anymore. But uh, <laughs> they wanted to use me. They wanted to use me for crab bait. I think that's a little extreme. So it was time to get the hell out of here. I walk, I'll land down in the backseat of the guy's car. He said, if you sit up, I'm kicking you out of the car. So I roll into Portland, and the day I come in, he dropped me off by the old Sears building in downtown Portland. And I get out of the car, and I'm kind of, you know, now what's my next plan? You know, I'm burned up all the cash. I'm just humping along to whatever life is in store. And way in downtown Portland, I hear this roar. I could hear this. It sounded like a riot to me, which I heard in 68. Turned out I just walked in. The, bla- the Portland Trailblazers have just now won the world championship. I walk in the middle of the party, it's ticker tape parade, the only one I've ever seen. I'm sitting on the curb, and this guy says, can you roll? I said, I can probably, yeah, I can help you in. I'm sitting there twisting one up, and I looked over, and there's a blue pant leg with a dark blue stripe. Oh, no. That's what I said. <laughs> I look at him, I said, number one, number one. It took me three days to get home from downtown. I ended up working up on Mount Hood. I got a job, a good job, driving a snowcat. That was kind of a long, convoluted story. It's hard to do that. And I'm, I'm good at getting jobs. I am just have a problem keeping, up, keeping them. And, uh, you know, okay, so if I'm in the bars till 2.30 in the morning, it's a little ridiculous to expect me to be at the mountain shop at 4.30. <laughs> 9, maybe. But 4.30, really? And uh, I had, they were setting me up with a job in Breckenridge and Aspen. I mean, I had it. It's all right there, but of course we blew it up. So there's a succession of just different little adventures and made for funny stories today. But then, uh, my old man, I was in between episodes and I was back at mom and dad's house because that's where we go. I'm down in the basement hanging out, smoking a little bit of that, non, that outside issue in the fireplace. And he was in the shipping industry and a friend of his named Pierre Tiernan with Standard Oil. I hear the old man answer the phone. Oh, yeah, Pierre, how you doing? He's a Norwegian guy. Hold on. Bum, 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 hear him stop. Yeah. You can't see me. I'm looking around the corner. He goes, you want to go to sea? And I thought, no. But the answer is yes or get the hell out of here. I said, sure. It was right before Christmas. Three days later, I'm in Long Beach, California on a Norwegian ship. Those guys are not the, this was not the Nobel Peace Prize Committee. No. These are modern day Vikings. The real deal. They were fun. Crazy. I fit right in. So that, that's a whole different episode. I mean, I, uh, Long Beach jail, I'd share this about getting locked in the, being in Long Beach jail, getting booked, and them stopping an elevator between the seventh and eighth floor. See, there's a nod right there. I didn't know it was a routine. I thought it was a special stop. It wasn't. And, uh, I found out saps are really a powerful weapon. 
When he hit me with that sack, I had a lot to say to that cop, and boom, and I just forgot what the rest of the comment was. <laughs> I got out of jail. The ship had sailed. That's not good. You're supposed to be on the ship when we leave. <laughs> this this uh, Serbian I was working with, Clinar, he had a hooker, friend of his, uh, she, had got, she bailed me out, and I stayed at her place for a few days. The ship got into San Francisco. Flew to San Francisco. Skipper calls me up top. He wants to have a little conversation. And uh, that cost me $800 U.S. They were selling the ship to the Chinese. And uh, so where everybody's bye-bye, here's a one-way ticket to Portland. And so I flew right into Portland, called a buddy of mine. Yo, dude, I got about seven grand in cash on me. They, they want to pay me in kroner or U.S. dollars. I'll take U.S. dollars. So I called my buddy Mikey up. He picked me up. I went and paid cash for a car. I want to say 71 Riviera. I didn't have a license until I was 23 either. I don't need a license. I got keys. And uh, <laughs> before I dropped him off, and I was heading home. And, you know, Riviera is the way they're built. They're kind of like a plane wing. And it, it flew. It made it over the first yard. And we were doing just fine. That he should never park that 74 Maverick in his driveway. <laughs> if that damn car hadn't been there, it would have been a whole different story. I hit that thing, and oh, man. The cops show up. They know me. I've gotten rid of all the empties out of the car, all the other stuff. And cops roll up and says, you been drinking? I said, absolutely not. Right? <laughs> We're doing really fine. He walked over. He says, then what's this? And the flashlight goes on. How in the hell can a beer bottle be still half full after that kind of impact underneath the brake pedal. So bad, I mean, I've only been out of jail about 18 hours. I'm right back in again. And you see where I'm going? So I took a job, got a job on the, well, let's see. And then, okay, now let's go to the tugboat. So I ended up working on the tug. I used to work up here on the Columbia and the Snake River system. So I'm back home, though, in between 15 days on, 15 off. I'm in this joint down to 105th and Sandy. And, uh, the owner, Rick, they had taken the SWAT team would remove him from the premises at one point. He was dealing a lot of Peruvian marching powder out of there. Place was just going on back in the day. And I'm in there, and uh, a fight breaks out back by the pool tables, which that's kind of where the fights are supposed to be. And so the fights are going on back there, and this 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 good-looking Hispanic gal gets up, and she's, she's just hell-bent to jump into it for whatever reason. I grabbed her. This is not a good idea for you to do this, dear. And she's kicking and screaming. I'm thinking, man, this is potential in this relationship to come. <laughs> Let go of me. I said, Why? She says, I'm married. I said, but are you happy? She's kicking and screaming. <laughs> Can't make it up. So I got her number, shipped ashore, cooed and wooed her and did all that stuff, and we hooked up, and I figured the holes in my head had hit, hit the rocks in hers, and so <laughs> I, I, there was a situation at John Day Dam. By the way, that dam is broke, if you didn't know that. There's a 140-foot crack in John Day Dam. Think about that if you live downriver. But uh, we, um, we broke a toe up up in John Day, hit the locks really hard, and all the gear flying. It was, a, it was a real mess. Could have been killed. Anyway, in righteous indignation, I quit. Got a job working on the beach, and uh, we set up shop, and we did that for quite a few years. So in the meantime here, the DWIs are stacking up, and the other charges are stacking up. Being on paper for me is a way of life. It's been there forever. And uh, it's taken the consequence. You know, I mean, they're just, there's always problems. There's always somebody chasing me down. It's always, it just ain't ended, man. You know, that there's people, well, that there was some real risk there with these guys down the coast. That went on for a while. I don't pay attention to that. And uh, so moving on here, I got to start getting sober, Thomas, right? Yeah, yeah, you told me. Thomas told me what he expected me from me tonight. Yes, and I'll honor that. So, so um, the 80s, we're doing all this crazy stuff. The guys I'm working with, it was a construction-related deal regarding a, a, a waterworks supply house. We do it with the water pipe, your sewer line, all the fire hydrants, all that kind of big stuff. So all the guys I work with, we all took turns going to jail, it seemed. By the time you're cleaning up your dewey or your arrest, and that's my turn, we just go back and forth. And, you know, it seemed like I always had an extra guy on, pay, on payroll just to fill the gaps. And so it was like a routine. I get nailed on this last one. 
And I remember going to the boss, and the boss he says, uh, I, I'm going to have to go to jail 30 days. That's how you figure. I got that DWI, dude. You know, yeah, I'm going to have to go to, I got to go to jail for 30 days. Says, no, you don't. No, they give you an option, 30 days, or you can uh, go to A&A meetings. I said, Joe, I want to go to jail. <laughs> right? I don't, I want to go to jail, Joe. He said, the hell you are, you're working, dude. I need you here at work. So I had to stick around and go to work, and uh, we put it off, put it off, put it off. Finally, I get the tail end, I got to go to this A&A meeting. And like any tough guy, it's, there was one on Sunday night in Meridian Park Hospital in Tualatin in the cafeteria. And I said, hey, honey, will you want to go with me? And she looked at me like I was inviting her to describe dinner with the Antichrist. And I said, well, I know how she felt. And uh, so I walked in there, and here you have about six of you guys, happy, joyous, and free. Do you have a book? No. I should, though, shouldn't I? I bought the cheap one. I got the little one. And uh, so I go to this A&A meeting. Now, i got to be honest with you back then. Okay, so it's A&A. I will concede that there were times in my drink I'm going to get a little nuts. Now, you put hard liquor in me, not so good. I one time drinking tequila, dangled a guy over 120 feet over the I-84 freeway with one hand, beat him senseless with the other because he ran out of gas. Right? People say, you're a big teddy bear. Well, you don't pet him in Yellowstone either, do you? No, I mean, you don't know what's going to go on. So somebody here a while back was talking about a party at our house. I vaguely remember this. Me putting a shotgun in a guy's chest and having a one-sided conversation with him because I was a little ticked off at him. You know, that's who you got standing here. So here I am, this kind of stuff. I'm, I'm smoking a little bit of non-habit farming weed. I'm going to AA meetings. <laughs> You've never done it, right? <laughs> hey, speaking of never done it. Any other bedwetters in me in this room? <laughs> you know what? I saw four hands go up. Okay, you guys are busted. Okay, with the Alanons in the room, how many times have you woke up in a bed, mysterious, a wet, bit, a wet bed? <laughs> the Alanons going, Alan, help me here. <laughs> you see that? Yeah, yeah, and four of these guys. You're peeing out the window, you're peeing in dresser drawers, you're in the, your friend's refrigerator, really? You know, come on. I digress. So, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, A&A. So there I am. This is, this, this, you know, I'm just, I go to these meetings and whatnot, and we'd be out of coffee, and somebody, I, I smell pot. So, me too. It's strange. So this is around spring. And uh, I had an F-250 I bought from the company. Sometimes the reverse would work. Sometimes it wouldn't. But uh, so I got this part-time truck. Now I'm suspended as all get-go. I actually just got off. I just got off a six-counts driving on a suspended. I'm on one again. I just, just, we're just, I just won't stop. And a buddy of mine needs to move. I'm a good American. When you, you got the truck, when your buddy needs you to help move, you help move. Because when you help move, it's going to be, it's July. It's hot work and a couple of cold beers, right? It's America. It's somewhere. It's, it's, it's our culture. So I got to help Jeff. I'm going to help him move. And, I was, and that's what I was going to do. I mean, I'm in the truck. I'm headed over to his place, and there's a 7-Eleven. I thought, I should probably grab a couple of beers. I walked in. I got one 12-pack, set it down, and I'm, one's not enough. I went back. I grabbed two. How much stuff does Jeff have? I grabbed two more. Get it, he's a few blocks away. I got to walk in the house. My soon-to-be ex-wife is there. Jeff and his fiance, who I had no history with. She didn't know me. I didn't never affected her life in any way that I'm aware of. And, uh, and then my dog's over there, my dog Koba, who I used to drink with. Koba never gave me any shit at all. But <laughs> so I walk, I walk in the door, and I got these four half racks, and she said that. What are you doing? It's well, I'm moving this in, and the rest of the stuff's moving out. But yeah, you know, they all gave me that look. Remember the look? And the dog kind of caught the attitude. That was just traitorous. 
So we're, we're, we're doing this thing, we're getting him moved, we're getting him loaded, we're pounding it back, and, and uh, Jefferson Army, he had, there was a, he had one of those weird little bachelor bars, the little ice bucket thing, and yeah, stupidity, a lot of waste of money, dude. And then we had this thing set up, and there's this box with a bunch of hard liquor in it, including a fifth of Jose Corvero with a seal broke. It's a sin to not finish a bottle of Jose Corvero. And he, I remember Jeff saying, Chim, Narta Tequila. <laughs> There was a, a bar I was drinking in back then called the Country Inn. And the Country Inn back then was a prospect bar for the Brother of Speed. And uh, in the back door, be over to the back left, the back door in the park lot where things happened, there were, there were three bullet strikes over the door, the big round, like 45 or something. They never did fix them, but uh, I love that place. <laughs> they would tolerate me. <clears throat> I miss the smell of urine. Stale beer, the different assorted odors coming out of the bathrooms. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The flickering lights that don't work right, and, and, and the, the backing that's come off those back, the, the mirrors where it's all, they should have been thrown away years ago. <sighs> Jesus, yeah. So here I am. I somehow ended up in a gray out in the, at the, uh, the Country Inn Tower. And I'm an 86 from there. That's hard to do. And I never figured out how I got 86. I floated in there just by default like, like a horse going back to the barn. And there was a different bartender that night, so they let me sit. And I remember I'm in there just doing my thing. And to my right, who I remember, there was a Latina woman that the whole left side of her face had those deep bluish-green bruises that are a couple weeks old, deep bruises. And the way her telling me that her daughter beat the hell out of her in a drunken fight, I'm telling her she might want to consider A&A. &A. <laughs> It's my first active 12-step call. <laughs> and uh, carrying a message, man. And at some point, they call last call, and I've been going to A&A. &A. I did something extraordinary. I ordered a small pitcher. <laughs> I am not a small pitcher guy. Then we fade to black. And I have no, I don't know, I just fade to black. I lived a few blocks away. Next thing I know, there was this really high-pitched, Women, when they're real, you guys, when you're really angry, there's a whole different octave you can hit. And, and something about a son of a bee, and this huge crash, which I later figured was just the front door almost coming off the hinges. But apparently, hey, honey, I'm home. And, uh, it was, she just, she just shot out the door. So I roll out of that rack. I hadn't wet the bed yet. First order business, go to the bathroom under those conditions. So I staggered through the house and, come walking out, and I'm half drunk. I don't know, sometime way in the middle of the night. And it wouldn't be the first time I've come to in the wrong house, right? <laughs> and not a big deal. It's problematic. And, uh, and I'm kind of wandering around oriented. I think, where in the hell is this? Half the, most of the furniture's gone. Maybe, maybe, maybe I am in the wrong place. And do a little loop back around, double-checking the double-check, and where's my furniture? Matter of fact, where's my wife? <laughs> Where, you know, where, where, where? And then I wandered back into that bathroom because we're attracted to mirrors. At the worst time of our lives, we want to go look at the proof. <laughs> I don't know why. And I walk back in the bathroom. I'm looking at me and I'm seeing me. And I hadn't seen it earlier. But in that mirror in the top right side, there was a little post-it note. You know little post-it notes? That woman had written my entire life story on a post-it note. It said, you promised, you lied. Now all of a sudden, I, this gets clear to me now. I remember seeing that, and I'm looking in that mirror. I'm 34 years old that day. And she had written my entire life story in four words on a post-it note. And there's nothing to amend there. She's got it all. I don't know what the hell happened to me. Broken dreams, broken promises, broken family, broken children, corrupted everybody and anything I'd ever touched. It, I just tore it apart in some way or fashion. Always have. And I don't know why. I don't know why I can't turn this thing off. I just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And it gets worse. And I'm looking at that guy in the mirror. And I wandered around for a minute, came back, just said, here, I'm still here. And that post-it note. And I went back to bed. Woke up sometime Sunday morning, right across the street from me, in a church, in a Lutheran church basement. There, I know. 
There was a there was a an AA meeting there on Sunday night. I've been going there for a while. That night I walked in, got there a little bit early, and I sat, walked in the door, hooked a left, and sat in the back row because that's where the new guys sit. They asked if there's anybody new. And they, they, I got to know these guys over the last few months. I raised my hand up and I said it with sincerity. I said, I'm Tim and I'm an alcoholic. That was the 22nd of July, 1990. And it changed my life. But, uh, you know, I would, I'd stay here. I, uh, I stayed in AA. I didn't, didn't play any games. Uh, things were kind of crazy for a while. I was real tenuous about this getting a sponsor thing. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I'm an individual. I got pride, and I'm violent, and I can prove it. <clears throat> that worked for most people. There was a guy named Big Jim, and there's a hall in Portland called Scully's. And uh, Scully's is one of those joints where they, they don't even ask you your name. They read something from the big book, and then they point at you, and they expect you to share whatever he just read. And I had not been doing too well in the suburban meetings because I kept threatening people. I picked a few people up, backed them against the wall, and that kind of stuff. So a buddy of mine says, there's a meeting I've been going to, you ought to come with me. And it was Scully's. He takes me down there. These guys are pretty draconian, man. And uh, there was a guy cheering that night, his name was Big Mike. He read something in the book and he pointed at me. And I went off, whatever, the, the daily vomit of the day. <laughs> I don't know what the hell he read. He asked me, you want to share? Oh, Absolutely. I'm about halfway through my dissertation, and all of a sudden, this big dude, about 6'2", 6'3", he jumps up, and he's got, a, he's got a third edition hardcover. He stood up, and bam! He slammed that thing down this desk, and he looks at me just with total attitude. He goes, page 25, you dumb SOB! That ain't what he said, but that's how I'll put it here. Boom! And that book came flying at me at 90 mile an hour, headed right to my face. <laughs> this is one of those moments, like in the movies, they pause it, books in midair. <laughs> I'm looking at that, and this is going to hurt. And, and I kind of deflected it, and I thought, you throw, you throw, I'm, the battle shall be joined. I started going to Mike, and Lloyd reached over, grabbed him by the arm, he goes, sit down. <laughs> like a dog sometimes, you know what I mean? Sit! <laughs> and uh, I just stopped. I don't know why. He didn't deserve to be killed for throwing something like that at me. And he said, page 25, you dumb SOB. And I said, Lloyd, what the hell's on page 25? Shall I read it? Do I have glasses? I do. There is a solution. Imagine that, Mikey. This is a big book. Sharon, this yours? There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings which the process requires for its successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we'd not even dreamed. Right? And there's more. But I'll tell you what, I didn't know what to do with that. So I calmed down, watched my mouth and scullies after that. The company wanted me to go down to Medford, and uh, it wasn't geographic, it was a business deal. And it was a chance for me to go down and kind of start fresh, and I took it. I'm glad I did, it changed my life. I was told to look up a man down there named Don Pila. Don came out of Southern California like most people in the Northwest, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it ain't all bad, I'm in real estate. So, uh, yeah, I was told to look him up. And the first day I was there, I went down to the Solano Club, got the U-Haul outside, hit the 5.30 meeting. I went in, they said, any announcements? I said, yeah, my name's Tim, I'm moving here, I got a full truck, I can use four or five of you guys to help me offload it, and you will be getting to know me. <laughs> they came over, we offloaded, I came back, went to a meeting, we went down to the local uh, Withams truck stop, and here's this old man sitting across from me. And we're, I don't know who he was. And everybody's doing this, the meeting after the meeting thing. And it turned out this is Don. I've heard about this guy. And Sharon, I think you knew him. And uh, I, I'm listening to this guy. He's, he, he was with Chuck C. the day Chuck died. He's one of the guys that spoke at his memorial. I mean, he's one of, these, he's one of the good old timers. And I remember telling him, I said, where you go? I'm going. Who you know? I want to meet him. 
Then I really screwed up. I said, what you do, I do. He said, really? <laughs> yep. He said, be at my house tomorrow night at 5. I said, why? He goes, because you're driving. I said, where are we going? He goes, who cares? <laughs> so I go over, I pick up that old man, and uh, he's telling me where to go. I don't know the area. We get on I-5, and we're headed north. Now, from Medford, Oregon, up the I-5, there's a little town called Rogue River. We go up to Rogue River on that night. At the community center, there was a meeting back then. I don't remember the name of the meeting. But you didn't share unless you had 30 years. I mean, no, not needed. There's plenty of people to cover you. And I would just, that became a routine. And he got me, on a run with him, I'd do what he'd do. And uh, so Jackson County Jail, the Oregon State Penitentiary, the treatment centers, uh, the VA domiciliary in White City, back then it was the largest treatment center in the federal system. All these things became part of our routine. And I, I went with him, and that's what we did. To the Oregon State Penitentiary. It's the spring day, and, you know, we can't wear any denim, right? So I was wearing these cotton sweats, whatnot, sandals. I remember the tulips were blooming. It was really spring weather. And from Medford to Salem, with a guy who stops every 50 minutes for a cigarette, it's a long drive. We get up there, and we go to go through security, and they said, you need socks. Get the hell out of here. I don't have any. It's Sunday morning in Salem. He goes, no socks, no meeting. I can tell you with authority that the Circle K's on Sunday morning in Salem do not have Socks. I checked the clotheslines. Should have had Larry along. I couldn't find any socks, man. We come back, and I said, I can't go in. I don't have socks. We're sitting outside having a smoke, and the old man had kind of like beetle boots, right? He goes, man, but you're willing to do anything, right? I said, yeah, but, Don, they're not going to let me in. Cops are cops, right? And he says, yeah, but you were. You're willing to do whatever it takes. Says, oh, of course. Very with a grin, he starts unzipping his boot. Now, he peeled off that sweat, sweaty man sock <laughs> and handed that sucker to me. I tell you what, there's some really gross things in the world, but that, that, that's as high on the list. <laughs> we go to go through security, and they said, you're good. I said, but he ain't got any socks. So we don't care about him. We care about you. <laughs> Don would take me through the 12 steps. So we ended up, I, I had not done a four-step. I, I kind of played games with it, but I need to get real with this deal, right? We, we hit that point. I'm a couple years in here, and I need to get with it. So we're back down in Witham's truck stop, and I'm telling him I need to get with this thing, bub. And uh, so we're going to sit down, we're going to talk this over. And Don got sober in 1960. He, technically, on paper, he had a fourth-grade education, which I think was an exaggeration because he could, his reading was just terrible. But he understood this stuff. He gets up in mid-sentence, goes up, and he's yapping away with one of the waitresses, comes back. I'm ready to go to Home Depot and buy, I mean, uh, Office Max, and get all the stuff necessary for what will probably become a great screenplay, right? And <laughs> he comes back. He doesn't sit down. He stands there, and he takes out a pencil, shows it to me, goes, pop, gives me the pointer down, very deliberately puts the eraser in his pocket. Takes out a book of matches, tears the back of it off. He goes, puts it down in front of me. He says, I'm going to go outside and have a smoke. You write down the three things you're taking to the grave. Then he walked off. I remember sitting there thinking, whoa, we need to talk a bit more. <laughs> we need a little more detail on this. And he walks out, and he's gone. I'm sitting there, I got a matchbook and a busted pencil. And I'm just scared to death. And there's a tap on the window, and I'll never forget it. I look over, and he reaches up, he's got a half a camel. When he finishes that sucker, he's coming back. The fuse is lit. <laughs> I'm going to share with you what was number two on that matchbook. We are creatures of secrecy and shame. Every man and woman in this room, if you weren't, you can leave now. Number two on that, on that matchbook were two words. I said, looted Wendell. He says, tell me about that. Don't you know I don't? I never imagined that I would ever stand at a podium and tell you guys. And I shared with him what I'd done three and a half years before coming out of these rooms. When I found him, he'd been dead for four days. He was face down in the front seat of his car. The key was in the on position. The gas tank was empty, and so was he. I've been running with this guy for quite a while. He'd been writing those hot checks, and I've been thinking, that's a great idea. I'll help you spend the money and know where we can spend it. 
And uh, he drank like I did. This guy, like a lot of drunken fathers, had blown up his marriage in Utah and came up to Oregon to move in with his 20-year-old daughter who just gotten married with a new baby. She needed that. Uh-huh. And the holidays were rolling up, and he got all depressed, and alcoholism flat killed him. But when I found him, here's who you got standing here. I reached over that dead man, and I could see his wallet in his back pocket. And I pulled that wallet out, and I came up with $4 of paper money. I'm looking for a payday. I roll the corpse over, and I start going through his pockets. When you've been laying face down in the seat of a car, you're not looking very good. The bladder voids, the saying a TV show. He's looking pretty grim. What I did, I'm going through his front pockets, and I'm taking those pissy nickels and dimes. I took them all. In the floor of the car, there was a 12-pack of Budweiser four days before. I drank one. He'd add one. I said, don't do anything stupid. There you go. And I uh, walked out on him. I took that beer because he apparently quit drinking. And on the dashboard, there was a better part of a carton of Marlboros. And I'm a quick study. He must have quit smoking, too. Pinched a couple of tools and stole some other stuff because I'm a thief. Later that day, the county coroner sitting on my couch talking to me, and I got those pissy, those picky, those pissy coins in my pocket. And I know who I am, and I know what I've done. And there's certain things you do. There's certain things that are just so, we slide it across the bar, right? Yeah, I slid it across the bar. That wasn't the first time, but that's a big one. I shared that stuff with that old man. He shared me some stuff that had me sitting down. And then we did the rest of it. He said, get your butt home. Turn off that phone, put on a pot of coffee, and be in my house tomorrow night. Not six weeks from now. Tomorrow night. Get her done. Thank God for you old timers. Thank God for the guys who keep this thing, Alcoholics Anonymous. We're not watering this thing down. Alcoholics Anonymous, he taught me, is about saving alcoholic lives. So, you know, we were doing the, the penitentiaries, the treatment centers. I got volunteered for the VA domiciliary. Showed up. Marianne at that time had 34 years. Otto is going to have 60 years here coming up. They looked at me and said, ah, I'm glad you're here. Here's the keys. To what? Well, we need a new secretary for the VA Dom. Uh, I said, I can't do that. Central down in Medford, that's my home group. Got to be there on uh, Monday, Tuesday night, whatever it was. And all of a sudden, you ever have these guys, the old, especially the old timers, act like you're not even in the room? <laughs> Mary Ann says, hey, Don. He goes, yeah. He goes, she, he says, uh, she, well, she said to Don, Tim's telling us he can't do the VA Dom on Tuesday night because he'll be at his home group. He says, you tell that SOB we will know where he is. And she looked at me with a big grin. Come here, Timothy. Here's the keys, here's the coffee, and two years. So I got out of Medford, came back up to Portland a couple years later, and I've just been involved ever since. Uh, in Seaside, one morning at the, the spiritual breakfast, I looked over and boom, a vision for you. There's this hot redhead, beautiful blue eyes. I thought, she looked like a future ex-wife. <laughs> I was right. So that's how I ended up in, in, in Mount Vernon, Washington, which is a weird place to be where the cow shit was gently on the breeze. And uh, <laughs> spent this right next to true, right? So I, that's where I got to know Don and these guys and uh, started a meeting up there called No Reservations on the Indian Reservation. <laughs> got to admit, it's a catchy name. And um, just doing the deal, you know, then th th that all blew up. She got a little slippy poo and... 2009 hit, and we lost everything, ended up back in Portland. But it's been an interesting time, you know. So I want to go back to this family. The last time I saw Don was in February. I had him down in Portland. And I got a phone call that day. And uh, time got here. And I got a phone call that day. And uh, it was a, my youngest stepdaughter. I haven't talked to her in 27 years. We've texted, tried to keep track of her. All the dysfunctionality goes along with the dysfunctional families in full play. She just contacted me. I'm living over in Vancouver, and her mom is in a hospital a mile away from me. I haven't seen her mom in 25 years. 20, at that point, be 27 years. Yeah, because my mom had died of acute alcoholism, and she was at her funeral. I hadn't seen her since. But so Linda, my first wife, she's in bad shape. She's over the hospital. And what I'm hearing on the phone is acute alcoholism, full-blown cirrhosis, final stage. So I left the meeting. We were with these guys. And uh, I just got right out of there like we were doing tonight. Just got to go. 
I walked into that hospital room, and here she is. She's lucid for a little bit in and out. She knew I was there. And the kids knew I was there. And children I haven't met. I raised these two kids, right? Uh, we survived a 130-mile-an-hour head-on crash. They killed their uncle, had another kid get killed. Me and the youngest girl, we triaged the entire scene. And that was a huge part of my life to come for several years. But uh, we've been through a hell of a lot together. Now mom's dying, and after all these years, I'm back in the picture. But I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous here. We sat there, and I just talked about the things we can talk about. I just, what can I do to support the kids and their families? What can I do to be of service here? And uh, I helped them get her into hospice. And when she did pass away, I helped out with the funeral and, and, and uh, the cremation. My ex-wife is now sitting on my shelf in an urn. It's a little weird. <laughs> Please, no more post-it notes. But she, the thing is, I came in here, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I came to you people, and my life changed. And she drank like I did to a large degree, and she went where she went, and her life changed. And we have two divergent worlds here with two completely different endings, right? And that's just the way it is. And uh, so there's, uh, the other day I was at a birthday party for a four-year-old, and he'd be like, they call me dad. Because they're, both these girls had different fathers. And they, they're, anyway, they all died. The drinkers killed everybody. And I'm the closest thing to a father. And that, that whole family unit, as distorted and crazy as it is, is coming back into my life. So that's uh, a little bit current. I'm going to digress when I was just new. Got sober in July. First Christmas shows up. And that's a real downer time, Right? Broken dreams and broken promises. Nobody, the phone ain't ringing. And I've just trashed everything. And I'm not working the steps yet, so I got no solution here. I'm just in the problem. And I just lost it one day. Thank God the first Gulf War was going on. That was a little bit of release. But uh, I just, I had a meltdown. I ended up in a fetal position on the floor. Just lost it. Like a psychic break. And I just cried myself, done. You know, and all of a sudden the phone rings. And there was a guy I ran into in one of my first meetings. I used to drink with him. I didn't recognize him because he cleaned up looking like you guys. He said, it's Dave. I went, oh, my God. Dave, what happened to you? I remember him saying, I was wondering when you were going to show up. But it's Dave calling me. He goes, what are you doing? I said, not much, Dave. Just having a little cry. <laughs> He had a girlfriend named Shelly, and she had two little girls. And these two little girls, had uh, Shelly wanted me to come over to her house that night for a little Christmas get-together and dinner. And when I went over there, these little kids, they gave me this little basket. Just a little simple thing. Probably got it at Safeway for three bucks. But it's a little basket. Had that Easter candy, that Easter grass plastic stuff. I still have it. And a couple little bells on the handle. Those little, and these kids were members of Alateine. Their mom was Alanon. There's Ella dogs, Ella cats. <laughs> I've never forgotten that simple gesture. And in all my years of being here, I've done a lot in my world. I have integrated and done a lot of things I can with the Al-Anon family groups because it goes back to a simple gesture. And that basket sits on my shelf, and it belongs to me, and it's mine. To Christmas. It's a friend of mine down in Washougal. His name's Bill. Bill's a big railroad man, and uh, he's retired now. Surely you know Bill, big Bill D. He called me up. I was over at Mom and Dad's house. I have no idea how he, this pre-cell phone. He's taking a meeting to the Oregon State Mental Hospital. Now, how many here have seen the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Okay, that's where it was filmed. Okay, that was in Ward, I think it's Ward 40B. They've, now they've since tore it down. They built a whole new hospital, and it's about time. That place was dark. It was scary. I had family members there back in the day. It's part of my childhood. But Bill was doing, in his service, what he was doing was taking meetings into the teenage adolescent ward. These are teenagers that have been remanded to the custody of the state of Oregon until they're 21. No fans or maybe. Christmas Eve, he's shy on people to take a panel into that, into that hospital. He goes, what are you doing? Apparently, I'm going to go to Salem. So we hooked up, and we go down there. And these doors, they got to be at least seven feet high. And they're big, and they're thick. And I mean, it, that place, it just, it's scary, man. It really is. It's echoey and just dark and gloomy. And you could hear screams way off in the distance. And 
We go down this hallway and about the third or fourth door down the left, here's this meeting room. And in that room, there's a group of kids, maybe 17, 18 of them. And they got these two liter pop bottles. And in those bottles, they got a branch off a fir tree. Now at Christmas, it doesn't take much to make a Christmas tree. Remember when we were little, those little paper mache decorations we make, the little sparklies on them? There's some of those hanging on this little branch. And it's Christmas. And what we're going to do, as a panel, we're going to share, and everybody in this room that wants to is going to share, and when we're done, we're done. There's no time limit. Well, we do our thing. We go all the way around the room, and there's a little girl sitting over there. Her name was Amy. Just a little whooper. She's like 15. She hadn't shared. She was the last person to share. And what I remember out of her, this is before it became popular, but her boyfriend had been killed in Portland in, a, in some gunplay up there. And uh, she'd been doing things down behind the dumpsters and on the streets of Portland. You don't want your 15-year-old kid doing. She'd come from a dark place, and here she was in a way dark environment. Just sad. We formed up in that circle like we're going to do here in about an hour and a half. <laughs> and we formed up in that circle. Now, I've heard it said in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're real lucky, if you're real lucky and you keep coming back, you're going to have the opportunity to be there when the lifetime of hurt and pain breaks loose from somebody. You get to be the one to hold them and be a part of that experience. I got it that Christmas, and it belongs to me, and it's mine. And Amy gave it to me. She's on my right-hand side, and I was wearing a black chamois shirt, and she trashed that shirt. She was, there wasn't a sound out of her, but she just held on to me, and there were just wet tears, and I just held on to that kid. And that kind of hiccupy, she was trying to say something. I had to listen real carefully. I said, what's that, honey? What? And she said, maybe. Here's the gift. She, this, she said it to me, and I'm sharing it with you because it's for all of us. She said, maybe there is hope, even for a person like me. <sighs> Big Bill and I walk out of there that night, being poor, and it's raining like hell. And we just sat down the stairs and started crying. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What do, you, what do you do with that, right? I thought I had some problems. What were they? And... Uh, <laughs> Roll the clock forward seven years. Bill spoke about six, eight months ago, little town of Gresham. And, and uh, normally, we would, somehow, we just shook it out. This is my story. But he looked at me and goes, I'm going to tell it tonight. I said, you should. And he told that same story. And we, he'll ask me the next time I see him, but did, you, did you tell him our story? And I'm going to tell him I did. So seven years later, Bill calls me up. Christmas is coming up in a couple of days. He's got to go down to Corvallis and pick up somebody and bring him back to the hospital, putting the panel thing together. Can you help out? I think I can do that. So I'm in. And I drove down there. I had to meet him. We had to wait in the parking lot a little bit. He shows up. We get inside through all the doors and the same old setup. We get in there. It's a different group of kids, a little bit smaller. Here's that pop bottle again. There's that little facsimile of a Christmas tree that is a Christmas tree. And this young girl that he brought with him up from, from Salem, she's sitting at this table, sitting across from me, and I shared that story. And as I am, her, face, her hands come up to her face, and the water's just pouring down over her hands. There's not a sound out of her. Big Bill's sitting back here to my left. And I just keep going with it, and he comes up, and he squeezes my shoulder, and he goes, Merry Christmas. That's her. To this day, she's somewhere down in the area of Corvallis, She's been sober ever since that first meeting. I've only seen her that one time. Bill knows where she's at, and he kind of keeps tabs. She's got a couple of kids. And somehow, through the grace of a God, we don't have to understand, I was able to fly over, the, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but so was I. She's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's got a life, and she's there. To me, she's like a wild thing that we know exists, right? Once in my life, I caught a glimpse of a mountain lion. I know that they're there. I don't need to have concrete proof I know it exists. I know that there's God in the wind, just like you can't, you can't feel, see the wind, but you can feel it. She's there. That story belongs to me, and it's mine. So, what time we got? iPhones are cool. Sorry about you Android people. <laughs> but that, you know, my daughter, Lisa, she told me, she goes, she thinks it's really cool we're doing this kind of stuff. She sees, she sees what happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. She's met you guys. She's blown away by you people. 
She wants to come and hang out with you, and I'm very gently kind of, I don't know if she's alcoholic, but her life is so damaged by the exposure to this disease over generations that uh, we don't have time to get into all that. But she's seen it all. The other day when I saw her, she reached into her purse, she pulled out a 40-millimeter pistol by the barrel. He got some issue with some yahoo that he needs to be shot. Excuse me, but anyway, she just, what, dude, who, give me that damn gun, you know. So it's just, there's a lot of damage here still going on. But uh, back to that comment in the hospital. Maybe there is hope for a person like me. You know, and uh, so Merry Christmas, you guys. And like, you know, it, uh, like, I, I love what Dr. Bob said in his last message to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I honor you and I thank you for your lives. Good night. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.